You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culture Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Ari Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is a uh, woman who writes behind a pseudonym, and her name is Default Friend. Uh, Default, can you please introduce yourself? Hi. Um... Most people know me as default friend. Now it's weird, even in public. <laughs> um, I write an advice column and sometimes I comment on culture. And now I also have a podcast of my own. Uh, well, congratulations on the new podcast. I think you, you're the person who maybe has been like, who I'm aware of has been like most productive during the pandemic. Um, you have a, a newsletter, uh, a podcast, um, you had, you're involved in this um, startup that uh, whose co-founder I, Justin Murphy I had on the show a couple of months ago. Um, so you've you've been very busy, and but we're mainly going to be talking about the topic of your podcast, and it's the name of the podcast is After the Orgy, and uh, what's what's sort of the two line one or two line summary of of the podcast. Um. It's, I, so I, I find there's a, there's a lot of like commentary about uh, feminism and, and gender relations uh, and like our new sort of, I don't want to call it like woke culture because I don't totally subscribe to that description of it, but there was a lot of cultural changes that are becoming super visible right now. Um, and my thesis is it's because of things that happened between 2008 and 2014 so my co-host and I are, for the most part, exploring, you know, what went sideways during the Obama administration that got us to the point we are now. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is what is the uh, the title itself? What is what is that a reference to? Um, it's a it's a reference to a Baudrillard. Baudrillard. I feel like such a dork not being able to pronounce accurately, but a quote. Um, you know, what are we going to do after the orgy? Uh, so. It's referencing we're we're sort of in that after the orgy period right now. And so okay, so so what? Uh, okay, what's in that? What, uh, sorry, <laughs> what would what was Baudrillard? If that's how you pronounce his name, this French poet or writer, or whatever. Um, I don't know how to pronounce it either. Um, what was he referring to? And then what what is the orgy that that you are discussing? Um, he was discussing if I if I'm recalling correctly, this is a the personality girl, who's my co-host, um, chose this title. Um, the the excesses of basically like the excesses of liberalism, and we're discussing the same thing. I think that period of time he was referencing um, was like right after the sexual revolution. Um, but we're talking about like the period of time, like we feel like there's a sort of oversaturation of like um, you know sex positivity for, to give one example, or like openness about like one's personal life um, during millennials early adulthood Mm -hmm. and uh, you know why did it happen then how did it happen how did it manifest and what are the impacts on our lives now Um, sometimes we we go a little bit off topic but we're really the the heart of it is really those like cultural observations Mm -hmm. so when you I think when you wrote in your newsletter that you were debuting a new podcast uh, I think the the phrase you used was uh, neo prudery, and that 
immediately interested in me. I think I messaged you even right then being like, I don't, I've never, I haven't listened to your show yet, but I'm interested in talking to you about on my, my show, because that just sounds, that was an idea I had, I hadn't heard before and it sounded interesting. Um, is that, are you still sticking with that? I mean, you, you, I'm bringing up that term. You, you aren't. Um, is that still something you're interested in? And if so, how would you, what's the definition of it that you subscribe to? So that was sort of tongue in cheek. Um, our first episode we were talking about uh, sex addiction and kind of critiquing this idea that sex addiction isn't real. Um, and that's why we used the, the phrase neo-prude because it, fe- it feels like if you have any kind of conversation around boundaries, um, people automatically start labeling you as this or that. Um, however, neo-prude is a real, is a real term that I, I, it's either Louise Perry or Helen Roy um, they're they're both really great uh, feminist writers. Um, one of the, I, I think it might be Louise Perry who uses who uses that phrase to describe her herself. Um, and it's this like sort of it's like a reaction to third wave feminism and this idea of like you know be like being a little bit more deliberate about your sexual choices. Mm-hmm. Okay, so two so two thousand eight. Um... The, I'm, I'm thinking back, I'm casting my mind back 13 years. Um, so things that happened in that year were Obama was elected and um, the financial crisis started. And also I looked this up. I was one year off. It is the, in 2007 was when the uh, iPhone debuted. Um, so those are all, those are all big events. Um, what is, uh, why do you think 2008 is, is a turning point um, in, you know, the uh, story of the relationship between men and women. Well, the other thing about about 2008 is this is when you start seeing people really overshare online en masse. People have always been oversharing online, but it used to sort of be like a sideshow attraction. Like Jenny Cam was enough of like um, a thing to, you know, make it on Letterman. Um, And for people who don't know who Jenny Cam is, um, there, there was a, a young woman, I think she was in her early 20s, who in the early 2000s and I think late 90s just streamed her whole life 24-7 and gave everyone this peek into her most, the most intimate parts of her life. Um, and, you know, by 2008, you're seeing more and more people just, you know, give everything, whether it's through like LiveJournal, which is a more, you know, a more mainstream expression of blogs, which is, you know, has always, have always been around, um, or, you know, social media, like Facebook is, you know, college students can start using Facebook, I think 2005, 2006, maybe even a little bit earlier. By 2008, you have high school students and, um, you know, other young adults who aren't necessarily affiliated with the university on Facebook. Um, so I, I think like people uh, underrate how how much of an impact on culture that had mm-hmm. um i'm thinking i i have a memory and i think this was 2008 so um it was the first time that i went out to dinner with someone and that person took out their phone and left it face up on the table during the meal um and if i have this chronology right i remember i didn't have a smartphone at that point and um probably most people did it if it was if i have this chronology right it was so what it would have been like uh february 2008 because i remember it was right around the time of the new jersey um 
uh, Democratic primary between Obama and Hillary. And I just, I remember being real, uh, like shocked by that. It, it seemed like rude to me. I was like, who does this guy think he is? Like, he's got to, really, and this is, like, this is in the evening. I was like, who's going to be like messaging him? This is also one of the first people I ever knew who um, was on Twitter. So, so this person was an early adopter. And, um, and of course, you know, that, that became the norm, um, or more or less, I, I assume it's, it's, it would still be considered a little bit rude sometimes, but yeah, there's nothing shocking about that anymore. So, 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 so there were some changes and some of them were technological and other ones were cultural and a lot of them uh, involved mixing uh, a mixture between the two. Um, and so there were a lot of, um, okay, so there's this term sex positivity and I associate that with terms like, you know, like slut shaming and being against slut shaming and body positivity and other sort of movements that maybe were at least became more popular through online. Um, do you, do you think we've run the course on, on those, at least the, the sex positivity part of that? Uh, I mean, I, I think so. I, I think the problem is, um, it sort of became like a runaway train. Um, and as, you know, like activist ideas or, or things that like made sense in certain niches, um, you know, become more mainstream, they become more and more divorced from their original purpose and like perhaps the original message. And, you know, bet between 2008 and 2014 is, is really when it becomes kind of a fad. Um, and you have all these like, uh, like, you know, like Jezebel, style you know, vice is another one um style sites like being very open and very provocative about um you know certain sexual behaviors uh and now it's interesting because i feel like we've reached the point where we've been so open about sexuality that it's actually starting to feel a little bit passe to continue it like it feels very millennial uh and um you know that's it's it's just because it, this isn't the way things are right you know like it's it's a trend that I, we've been way too, you know, it's, it's just way too oversaturated. It's, it's, it was it's too, too many places where it, it's still around, right? Like everyone's talking about their only fans and you, you flip through TikTok and people are talking about their one night stands, but it's, it's become transgressive to react against that. Right. So you are, are you're the one who, who has been, you found at least one point before finding TikToks of young women maybe maybe even teens who were like you know posting things that were like anti sex positivity would be said is sex negativity is that a term that's that's used or uh is, is it is that too far you no know, i think that so I, I use these these terms like sort of a little bit off label um i think that's actually like referring to something else but i i would describe the behaviors i see emerging as sex negative because it's not just um, you know, it's not just critical, right? It's sort of actively like, um, you know, people have like casual sex fatigue um, or they're not, you know, they're not having sex at all. In some cases, they might be virgins. Um, we hear a lot about it on the male side, but there's, you know, a lot of women who are, are, are celibate, um, both voluntarily and involuntarily. Um, yeah, I mean, people are having less sex than ever. And I, I feel like statistics really back that up. Um. 
Yeah, and so, you know, so some people call those the involuntary celibates, the incels, and then the voluntary celibates, the vol cells. And those terms became like heavily freighted with various cultural meanings over the past, you know, five or so years. Uh, and, um, but that, I mean, you could see that, well, the, you could see the incel stuff as sort of both a part of, and I guess, a re- and like a counter reactionary turn against sex positivity. Um, because it was sort of like the guys who were left behind or something. Once women, some group of women started, you know, speaking frankly about sexuality, um, maybe in, in the way that only men used to, um, is it like, so is it like with the, with the kids, the, the, like, is it cool to be voluntarily celibate or involuntarily celibate? Um, is it, this is reminds me of that stupid tweet from that uh, weirdo online reactionary guy, uh, prison planet, where he said um, conservatism is the new punk rock. But is is it sort of like it's now cool to uh, to not to not be sex positive? Um, you know, I think it's there's two things going on. I think there have been a lot of people who have genuinely been burned, and especially for millennial women who um, were you know, I, I don't, I don't think like hooking up is new, right? Like anyone who's sort of just been around in the world knows that that's sort of like a, you know, one of these like media fabrications, but the, the way and the amount of people and even like the amount of rejection some people are getting, right. is like completely new. Um, so I, so I do think some of it's fatigue from that, um, and not having any sort of like you know, kinship networks or more experienced people to help shepherd you through that. Um, or it's a lot of like the blind leading the blind. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then some of it is like, you know, as millennials get older and some of them are still hanging on to um, ideas of sex positivity. It's, it's how the younger generation can react against that and say like, okay, like our millennial forebearers are talking about like all the anal sex they're having or whatever. And like, you know, being very, very, very open about who they are um, and, you know, every stray thought that floats through their head, um, how we could rebel against that is by, by not being like that. Um, and then I, I guess there's like the third piece is there, you know, there is a, a, se- a sizable segment of, of Zoomers who have like the OnlyFans or, um, you know, it's like they their own TikToks that are like, very very sexualized um and that's more main that's more mainstream so like how do you identify against what's generally accepted as like this is the way things are you go in the opposite direction and that's what the the opposite direction is Mm -hmm. um yeah that okay so while the the idea that conservatism is the new punk rock I think was not borne out to be true over the past you know five or so years. Um, I totally disagree, though. How I, I it it I I actually do think it's true that um it it's the only like transgressive thing is to be this sort of like flavor of conservative that isn't the sort of you know like um like I don't want to say like boomer conservatism, but you know it's like it's this other it's this other type of being conservative that isn't recognizable as like the guy in the pickup truck with the bumper stickers um and it's not like the prius driving mom with the, like, the pussy hat or 
the super woke um, office worker or even like the apathetic but well-meaning person who's like a little bit of each. It's like this other weird thing that is definitely like right wing, um, but it's sort of the only thing left because, you know, you can't be so, you can't like shock the middle class with your, with being liberal anymore or be, or even being like left wing of any, of any variety. Okay. Uh, I, all there's left is right. Yeah. I mean, so that, that sounds sort of like the alt-right to me um, where it was, you know, the shocking thing was that they were, uh, you know, ironically, quote unquote, you know, using, um, you know, swastika imagery and, um, you know, joking about white nationalism and stuff. And that seemed to, you know, that, that was countercultural for sure. And, and, but that sort of petered away after the, you know, Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017 and after, Twitter at least went after a lot of these accounts to just ban them, you know, that were tweeting, um, you know, um, concentration camp oven memes at people with Jewish. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's not just that. I mean, like think, I mean, think about who, um, you know, like who's in the counterculture right now, like the counterculture, like certainly like isn't the like Marxists with septum piercings. Um, the counterculture is really like, these and and people accuse me of having Twitter brain, but if if even if you go out into the wild and to to meet space, you see this is true. The counterculture are people who are adopting right wing signifiers um, because it has become so corporate to to be what the old counterculture was. And I would say, like when I was growing up, it was like it was shocking to say you were like a Marxist or something, and it was shocking to have like an undercut and dye your hair blue or you know whatever thing, um, you know, not to be so like stereotypical about it uh but i mean like i meet brooklyn artists all the time who are like flirting who probably aren't actually like in practice right wing but they're sort of defensively right wing uh because it's all there's left and that's the only way you could really scandalize the institution i think so there was a video and it's possible that you you're obviously a conduit for me seeing a lot of things happening on tiktok because i don't I don't, you know, have the app myself, but there's this video that was going around um, of these women who were possibly Mennonite who were cooking in a kitchen and whoever's taking the video is asking them like, who is Kanye West or something like this? Did you, did you see this one? Oh yeah. I, I commented on it too. Yeah. Okay. It must've been you. So, so then someone retweeted this being like some, something along the lines of like, they're going to have to like batten the doors because I'm like going to come busting through to try to steal these women. Um, so, and this was someone with like a, I don't know if it was an anime avatar, but it wasn't, you know, this was like an, an anonymous person. And I guess, so, so that, as I understand it is like, you know, there's a type of guy out there who desperately wants a traditional woman to be with and to, you know, be his wife and raise his children. And the only people who are like uncorrupted by, the evils of modern culture are these people in like separate separatist sort of cultures, like the Amish or the Mennonites who have never heard of, you know, Kim Kardashian and don't know what twerking is, but they're like, you know, attractive 17 year olds with long hair. And so that's, that's like a new ideal. So that's, that's countercultural for sure. But um, I guess there's a difference between counterculture and punk rock, I think, because, um, you know, punk rock said like, fuck the system. And we're going to like vomit on stage on each other. And 
whereas this guy is saying like oh i just want to like marry marry a woman who has like you know a bonnet on her head you know like in a world where like Gigi allen is like working at starbucks right and and that's the ideal like starbucks employee i mean again like of course i'm like exaggerating quite a bit here but like in you know in, in a in a world where um what used to be considered uh punk is now cons- is now for the most part mainstream if not like kind of like actively pushed by corporations the only way you can rebel is by saying like you know like fuck it like the amish have, have got it right um it's it's like it's been so kind of colonized that everything's kind of flipped on its head. Yeah, I mean, I can see that that there's like a logic to thinking like, oh, the the like the only groups that have been uncorrupted are these, you know, like the, the Mennonites or I don't know if there's people out there who are lusting after like Orthodox Jews. That would be another group, or or just this like, did you see this is sort of this is not the same thing, but did you see this Twitter thing going around yesterday? about this sort of black separatist Marxist group that was going into like the high like Sierras or something and claiming that they had appropriated some land to build their own community. No, I, I didn't see that. Uh, I, I believe that the group is named Black Hammer and I, they became, they gained some, you know, online level of attention because their initial thing that went viral was they were uh, against Anne Frank and they were saying Anne Frank was a colonizer and she deserved what she got. Um, and so this is horrifying to 99.9% of the people out there, but this like young group of maybe Maoist, uh, sort of black nationalist inflected youth coming from, I think they were in San Francisco, maybe I'm wrong. Um, they were, you know, uh, shocking the bourgeoisie by saying, you know, um, fuck that bitch Anne Frank. She deserved what she got. Um, you know, she was just another colonizer and we need to, like reclaim the land for ourselves. So then yesterday they, they tweeted, like they still have cell access. So they're not that far from civilization that they had, you know, this group of like <laughs> seemingly 10 or so young people that all wearing the matching t-shirts had uh, appropriated uh, acres of land for their new community. And they were inviting all, um, you know, colonized or BIPOC people to come and join them in, um, in this new society. So that's, I mean, that's like, you know, I guess it's that, that's the sort of thing from the other end of looking for like, trying to find, find or make a, a new society that's not corrupted by the horrors of, of American culture. But anyway, that's just a bizarre side note. And, you know, Twitter exposes us to all these strange things. But, um, okay, is the, so are, so what are, so what are these people doing? Like, are they are they sort of, are they doing like sort of promise ring kind of stuff where they're just waiting for marriage or are they just sort of pining for a different society? Are they, or or are they just posting angry memes? What are, what are they doing? I think there's a lot of different expressions of it. Um, I, I do think there is a lot more like marriage talk with younger people. Um, And again, this is like super visible to me, like in real life, as well as on Twitter um, in a way that like, like I remember when I was in my early twenties, um, it really shocked people when I got married. Um, and not that it didn't happen because you, you know, like it, like when I, when I moved to Texas, there, you know, tons of people um, were, were married at my age, but within like a, a certain strata of folks, it's like, I never want to have kids. I'm, you know, I'm going to get married at 30. 
Um, and that was, that was kind of, that was kind of everyone's calling card. Um, and now I'm noticing like the reverse happen. It's like, okay, millennials waited so long. Um, you know, even if people aren't practicing this, right. There's a lot of like much younger people talking about like family planning, um, and talking about a coupling up. Um, by family, family planning, you don't mean in the Margaret Sanger sense, you mean planning to have a family? Yeah, yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I, I like I, I feel like I, I hear about people wanting to get married too, like like all the time. And if um, you know, if you look at like Justin's like arranged marriage project, uh, you know, like a quick aside, uh, my, my friend Justin Murphy is organize who's also on this show um he is uh setting people up to get to get married um i mean that was like he got like i, I think like like thousands of applications or something like it, it was super super popular um I'll, you know a lot of people are really hungry for it um whether or not it, it comes to fruition that's another thing but um people desire it for sure yeah I, well, I'm, I'm thinking about like, there's this, I mean, this is like sort of a well-worn chestnut at this point that, you know, people in blue states have like, you know, they vote and express the like cultural opinions of, you know, um, people who like embrace polyamory and, you know, uh, microdose psychedelics or whatever. But, you know, the ones who but in their lives they 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 mostly live like you know conventional 1950s lifestyles of marriage you know one or two kids both parents have a stable job so that may be somewhat different from the 1950s but like you know the if we're at least and we're probably mainly talking about like white people and or professional people in this subset so you know like the people i was friends with in college um, almost all of them got married between like 28 to 32 or so. Um, some of them, such as me, got divorced um, afterwards. But, you know, these, these are basically people, you know, well-educated well people, most of them with some sort of graduate degree. And they were not living in polycules. They were, you know, partnering up and some of them were having children. Um, so that's, you know, that kept on happening. And, and like marriage as a cultural, you know, like destination point for everyone's life continued to be like a huge part of the narrative during our like 20s and, you know, shows like Say Yes to the Dress and so forth, like continued to make it seem, and like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette continued to make it seem like marriage was, you know, like the ultimate end point of, of someone's life. Um, so I, I, so I don't, so some people were living in, you know, we're living different lives and some people were, you know, hooking up uh, with different people very often, whereas but plenty of other people were, you know, continuing with sort of conventional, conventional stuff, even if, if, even if they were like, maybe fine with like living next door to someone who was in a polycule or something like that. Um, I mean, I don't, so I'm not one of these people who thinks that like every you know, everyone under the age of 35 um, is leading this very sort of like sexually progressive life. Um, I do, I do believe that, uh, you know, maybe 
like mid to, to younger millennials were exposed to um, a much more casual attitude to sex than had ever really existed before, or at least like had a, it was more mainstream in a way where like, you know, like if you were to go to your mother or father for advice, they might be like mystified by the the culture. Um, but I also think like you have this phenomenon, I mean, and th- again, like this is sort of like statistically backed up, like people have been getting married like much later, um, ha- you know, having children much later. And there is like an impact to hitting those milestones um, in your 30s, uh, you know, and sometimes like in your in your mid 30s and your late 30s, uh, than in your early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, it and it had I think it has like a huge impact on people to um, have kids late, if you know, if at all, uh, and then also to have like older parents. Um, and I, I I totally agree with you. Like I, you know, I was sort of like romantically normal, if you will. Um, my siblings are also like romantically normal, like for lack of a better uh, way of putting it. Um, but at the same time, like, I don't know, I've, I've been invited to like three weddings. One of them is my own like siblings. Uh, and it's not because I don't have friends. It's like my friends just like aren't getting married yet. And I don't know if they, they will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think, I, I think it's, it's really, it's really in the air. Um, there's like a sense of like putting it off or like, this is something that is in like the narrative realm of television. Um, it, but it's, it's even like reflected in media. Like it's, it's now become like a media trope, the sort of late twenties, early thirties, single person is the norm, not like the freak show that gets thrown in for comic, comic effect. Mm-hmm. So, so, okay. So the reasons for that, that one could give that this, you know, this happened was, you know, um, it harder to get oneself established professionally and have enough of a salary that you feel like you could, um, you know, make that commitment. And that often comes with like buying a house and getting ready to have kids, which are all things that take, uh, that are very expensive. And, uh, the, and, and the expectation that many people in the, you know, um, the dreaded, uh, PMC, which is professional managerial class, like need to get a graduate degree in order to, um, become the professional managerial type person they want to so they're in school for you know um longer than than just college and maybe they're not even entering the job market until they're in their late 20s uh to begin with and that, so they're concentrating on their own education instead of you know thinking about uh <laughs> settling down uh so that there's that's part of it but then also like you know the dating app stuff and we did a previous episode where we talked about dating apps and how it can make it seemed like there's infinite possibility out there. Um, and, you know, why, why settle for one person when there's a hundred thousand potential other people out there. So, so that, that plays a role. I mean, um, do you, do you think that the, um, you know, the statistic of average age that a woman gets married for the first time or whatever the benchmark is, do you think that's going to start heading back down because of a, people feel like, they were waiting too long or are we sort of in a situation where that can't happen? No, I, I think for sure. I, I don't think it's going to be like, you know, in the next five years or something, or like, I don't think it's going to be immediately visible. I think we're going to see more and more um, people do it in this like kind of countercultural way and to like sort of worms its way back into the mainstream in the, in the same way that um, waiting 
uh, kind of, you know, it became like, oh, like my cousin got married at, you know, like 33. And and then it was like kind of like this one-off anecdote that you'd have. And then suddenly it's like, this is kind of just the way people are doing it. Um, I think like the reverse is going to happen. Um, and I also think like we're going to see it be more normalized to like lower your standards, I think, and just to like settle for people. Um, you know, another thing is, uh, again, like, I think this is an extreme that like, certainly like not everyone's doing, but it is kind of like in the water. Um, and I, and there is, there, there also is some research to say that like, this isn't such a bad thing for marriages. Um, but, uh, trying to like optimize for like the perfect partner or like the best possible partner that you, you know, you yourself can find. Um, and I, I think we're going to see a move away from that, um, in the same way, I, I think we're just seeing a move away in general from this kind of like self-help culture, um, pop psychology culture that we're in. Um, and I think it's all, I think it's all interrelated. Um, and, and again, like, the, the, you know, the idea that like you, you put off marriage for a little bit and you're with someone who, you know, for a fact that you have like shared values with, I mean, there's like significant evidence that like those relationships are much stronger, but there's also trade-offs there. Um, you know, one of them being, it's like you have your first child much later in life, or, you know, you're having certain experiences with your other half much later in life that perhaps, you know, your kids will look at you or, um, the, the younger people in your life will look at you and say, that's great, but I, I want to, I want to hit that at 25 instead of 35. Uh Uh-huh. Can you say more about, uh, self, how you see self-help culture or the uh, reaction against self-help culture playing into this? Sure. I mean, I, I think we're kind of, it's kind of in the air, like optimizing everything. Um, and I also will preface this with a lot of these trends that I, you know, that I'm thinking of and that I'm seeing are very anchored in, in, you know, the upper middle class, um, so it's it's certainly like this isn't the only way of life or only experience, but you know if you if you look at like the the popularity of say um, someone like Bronze Age pervert who like is one of these people where you know it, it's explain, like, explain who explain who that person is for people who have are yeah sure sure so he he's um he's a a right wing bodybuilder internet celebrity um, and people like him and Paul Scalis, who calls himself the Lindy man. Um, they both have like a strong emphasis on tradition. And I would also say like, uh, like human intuition. Um, and I, it, it, these are, ty- these are people who are actually like quite popular who you get, if you bring them up, you get written off as like, Oh, these are, they belong online. This is just an online thing. But more people know about these guys than it seems on the surface. Um, and I, I think there's signs that people are kind of sick of, are sick of like the optimization culture, or like at least in the way that we've come to know it. Um, and maybe things that are like tried and true are, are, are more attractive and are more conducive to happiness than kind of this like, you know, what what we've been you know pu- pushing now um be, this this push this attraction to tradition even if it is maybe like a little bit of a performance um seems to be 
like a reaction to what we have now, like, uh, you know, like therapy culture, um, you know, like, I think sort of like, like spiritually, like wearing the Apple watch and counting your steps and having, you know, like your heart rate um, perfectly monitored um, and having like the, you know, the, the vegan Tuesday and Thursday, right? Like, I think there's, people want to move away from that. Um, yeah, I, there's definitely, so yeah, this Bronze Age pervert guy who is a Twitter account, I think he, he is anonymous, um, and he has 65,000 followers on Twitter. Um, and Bro- Bronze Age Mantis is his handle if you want to investigate him. Uh, he is sort of, was he, was he like a Trump booster or did he just sort of ride the wave of that stuff? Um, but anyway, I guess it doesn't matter. But he, um, yeah, he's, he's, giving, he's selling something different in his, um, but well, I mean, what you're talking about reminds me a lot of like Silicon Valley culture, like, like, I think there's a difference between like self-help and sort of like life hacking, like the life hacking trend seems to have petered out. I don't know, probably the pandemic put <laughs> sort of ended the life hacking because what the hell were you like optimizing for if you were stuck inside all the time? Um, but, you know, so, so like the life hacking stuff was, would be like, you know, you don't need to, um, from just basic stuff, like ha- like setting out your clothes <laughs> the night before, so you want to decide in the morning to wear to sort of like stranger stuff, like drinking this stuff soylent, that is like this meal replacement. But, you drink. know, I think what what people miss though is like there's like a Silicon Valley like aesthetic, like there's like the Silicon Valley version of it, and then there's sort of like an East Coast version of it, but they're they're the same thing, right? Like the the East Coast expression might be like, um, you know, like so in Silicon Valley it might be like like your keto, and you have the Apple Watch and the Peloton, and you know, you're counting everything or like whatever. But then like on the East Coast, the sort of like therapy culture, talking about holding space, being very, uh, you know, it's sort of intentional, um, you know, finding new ways to, to navigate like the emotional landscape, um, it, both of them meeting at like new expressions of, you know, like relationship styles, um, pop psych books. These, I mean, they're, they're two different aesthetics for like the same basic philosophy and what would that philosophy be um like trying to to like you i don't want to say science but like um you know what is like trying to answer like what's the best way to live uh without looking at what you know what have what can we learn from people in the past Mm -hmm. It's like this move away from like mom's wisdom and sort of saying like, you know, that what what's what's uh, the wisdom that we haven't yet discovered? If if that phrasing uh, is at all legible. <laughs> okay, so is would you connect this to the people who um, are very interested in like uh, classical art and architecture and um, stoicism and other things? You know, rediscovering ancient philosophy you know that that kind of stuff yeah i mean I, I think these are all these are all facets of like the same the same like urge um and it, it can be hard to like to like cluster these things together when they like seem so different like you know i i, I think it it's not intuitive to think like the the tech bro um you know like the tech bro with like the fitbit or the apple watch is like the same person as like the teen Vogue editor, um, you know, who is like really into, um, 
like emotional honesty or something like, but they are the same. They're the same person in like a different outfit. And um, I think it's, it sort of works the same way with people who are reacting against that. Okay. I mean, so part of this is I, I had a theme um, that I was discussing both on Twitter and on the podcast over the past couple years about um, American life becoming cosplay. And this was evident in a lot of different spaces. And so on the left, you can say like, um, like rooting for Antifa and like um, putting out a black mask and then like going and pulling down a statue. Um, that would be, you know, one form of, of cosplay. And then uh, on the right, it would be things like, you know, uh, putting like wearing paramilitary gear and having an assault rifle and, and like parading around during your protest wearing that. And so, and sort of a, a culmination of this was the, you know, January 6th uh, storming of the Capitol where you had, you know, people in these wacky costumes, some of whom may have been mentally ill, like, um, you know, the um, QAnon shaman guy in the, the, Borskin, you know, headdress or whatever, but like people were, you know, like literally dressing up in costumes and like going out and pretending to like enact like a moral drama in the way that, you know, um, live action role playing people you know, would do by dressing up as like, uh, you know, medieval soldiers or something, or, you know, people at Comic-Con would dress up as their, as their favorite heroes. And um, and I, and the, I don't know, I mean, I have like a cynical view of the, you know, the Bronze Age pervert. I, I don't follow him closely, so I can't say, but the people who I see online who, um, you know, tweet photos of like, uh, Greco-Roman sculptures or something. And they're like, why can't we get back to this? Like, it's all just seems to be sort of like playing pretend and, you know, playing dress up. Um, and I don't, it seems to not have a, a strong connection to, to reality. And then like looking at, at Bronze Age Pervert's Twitter bio, I mean, okay, Bronze Age Pervert, who wants us to live, I assume, more like people did in the Bronze Age, um, is a Twitter personality, sells his book on Amazon, has a podcast that you need to pay money to subscribe to. And his, uh, his bio says, aspiring nudist bodybuilder, free speech, and anti-xenoestrogen activist. So I don't even know what xenoestrogen is i assume it means foreign you know uh female uh sex hormone i don't i maybe that's like an anti-trans thing i don't even know so this guy is he's not like wanting to go live in the woods or something he he's fully living like a modern technological life like regardless of what he's telling young men to do so i don't know i i don't know if there's <laughs> what even question i'm driving at here but it just, it seems performative in the same way that a lot of American politics in the Trump era were like, were performative and going to Trump himself, who was like, you know, a performance artist. I did a whole episode with a scholar of performance art studies about Trump, you know, viewing Trump as a performance artist as a way to understand him. Um, does, does this strike you as sensible or crazy? So, so like you have like these, these big Twitter personalities or these big, like, you know, figures um and i i think they're just they're they're vessels for 
ideas. And the more interesting thing to, to look at is like, who's consuming the ideas and what of their ideas are they taking, right? Like it's not ever gonna be the whole message, but you know, what, what's resonating with people. Um, like with Bronze Age Pervert, I would say he's had a, has had a big impact, but I would say like the most visible one online and in real life is this idea of the importance of like physicality and bodybuilding. And it, it would be, it would definitely be like a lie to say that, um, you know, men aren't rediscovering bodybuilding in this sort of political way as sort of a refuge from modern life. Um, the LARPing question is interesting. I mean, I do think a lot of people exaggerate and LARP, but I, I like, I still have to, you know, question like, what is it, what values are attractive to them, whether or not they're capable of living those values and what of those values are they trying to live? Um, you can't do it all because there's like certain economic constraints. Like you could, you could want to be, um, you know, as, as, as trad as you want, or as, um, you know, as strong as you want, or as masculine as you want. But if you're not able to, because of your day-to-day -day life, you know, like you go into an office or you go into a retail job or something, you're going to have certain limitations, but, you know, are you still focused on that? Is it still what you think like your idolized state is, you know, I, I think it, that's sort of like worth investigating. So, I mean, just, you know, so I just looked on Wikipedia for the article for bodybuilding. Um, there's a subcategory, early history, stone lifting traditions are practiced in ancient Egypt, Greece, and Tamalakam. I don't know what that is. And then Western weightlifting developed in Europe from 1880 to 1953 with strong men displaying feats of strength for public and challenging each other. So, you know, bodybuilding does not go back to the Bronze Age. Bodybuilding is like a modern invention. But I think you're getting like too stuck on like, well, like when you're getting like too fixated on that, like who cares, right? I'm just saying he's like one of like maybe like 50 people, right? Who has enough of a following that seems like it's cordoned off to the, like, I, I don't know his full, his like, his full um, personal philosophy <laughs> or, you know, I don't listen to his podcast mm -hmm. or anything. Um, but I like as an as someone who's like very outside of that realm, I could also like name what you know one of his chief impacts has been. Um, and I think like often it's not like people like literally like you know the the trads are another people who are coming up a lot. Um, and like you know what tradition like what do you want to go back to? No one really has an answer for that because it's not a centralized movement, but. Um, you know, they, what is, what they do have in common is they, they want to go back to a, t a time where there were real or imagined that where family values were more central and it, people have certain limitations, um, but it's still important to them. And the, I, you know, I, I agree it, it, it is sort of a LARP, but then what's the alternative to, to LARPing if you have to pay your bills and, you know, like, you you can't grow your own vegetables because you like you don't have the time and you don't have the space for it because you live in a condo and that's the only thing you could afford and that's the only type of uh you know type of space that you can live in in your town. Mm -hmm. um, well, it, it, so it's sort of like what these, sort of like these, these black hammer people, you know, they they have this idea that they're going to go build a self sufficient society in the mountains. You know, God bless them. They're probably some of them are going to 
severely injure themselves or die trying to do this. Um, it's just like impossible to actually get back to the land in any, and he says, I don't know. So, you know, um, yeah, I mean, so, you know, Trump's slogan was make America great again. And it was always unclear what he meant exactly by that. My best theory was that he meant he wanted to return to a TV version of the 1950s. Um, and so there's still, so that is a huge cultural symbol of, you know, what, like the suburban American ideal was and that people want to get back to, but, you know, it was kind of, you know, it's, it's like a fake, it's like a fake nostalgia. I'm, I'm also reminded of, um, I didn't read the book, but Michelle Goldberg wrote a book and she came on blogging heads when it came out in 2015 or so about the origins of yoga in the West. And I mean, that's a similar thing to, you know, to bodybuilding, I guess, where, you know, it, it has some link to things that happened in, you know, India, um, thousands of years ago, but it's really this mishmash of like, you know, like British army calisthenics and, and other like modern dance things that were spun together and given, uh, you know, uh, a surface or patina of like ancient, ancient Chinese wisdom, obviously not Chinese, that's a joke, you know, sort of bullshit so that people are like, you know, um, feel like they're doing something real instead of looking at their phone all day, which we all know sucks and is fake. I mean, the, the, the thing about like bodybuilding though, I mean, to like circle back to that is like, you know, bodybuilding as we know it might be, uh, you know, like an invention of like 1880s, like circuses or whatever. Um, but, or, you know, I don't, I don't know the, the precise history of it, but like, t- like being grounded in your own body and strength being a virtue is a tale as old as mm-hmm. time. And I think I, I, I with, and to like go back to the yoga thing, it's like yoga as we understand it um, might not have the, the, the tradition and the history that people think it does, um, especially like divorced from a religious context, but it's, it does bring people back to like a, a ritualized embodied way of being that they don't otherwise have access to. And it's, you know, the, the best you can do in a, a secular society. Yeah. And then uh, something that Robert Wright, the founder of Blogging Heads, uh, he has mentioned and he wrote a book called Why Buddhism is True is that, you know, um, meditation as is practiced in the West is not widely practiced in actual Buddhist societies. That it's mostly just like priests or like novitiates, whatever the correct term is, uh, are the ones who, who meditate and lay people um, don't meditate. So, so um, it's, you know, Western Western culture took some part of this ancient uh, system of beliefs, but but not not the entire thing. Okay, we've gotten we've gotten a bit far from the original topic, but obviously, you know, lots of lots of things are swept up in this. Okay, so we okay, so we did an episode a little over a year ago where we talked about online dating apps, and that was actually the last episode I taped before the pandemic lockdown started. So, um, and once that happened, um you know, it, obviously everyone's life changed, uh, immediately, but also the sort of things that you were talking about as wanting to get off of dating apps to return to like, you know, going to a bar and catching someone's eye that became impossible. And so if you wanted to, you know, get with someone, uh, and you weren't with someone already, the app, the, the dating apps are kind of the only way to do it. So, so people were stuck in that for some period of time. Now, um, normal life is sort of returning and there's all this 
you know, it, it's like a, a joke meme at this point that there's going to be like a hot vac summer where people are all their pent up energies are going to be directed into hooking up with strangers and stuff. So how do you think that interacts with what you're seeing and are even the people who are like countercultural, what like, are they still like jonesing to like just go out to a bar and pick someone up or get picked up and have a fling because we've been deprived of so much human contact over the past year? Uh, I mean, I, I, I think everyone period all the time, you know, regardless of their engagement with dating apps, like would prefer that it was like easier, um, you know, like socially, right. Like in the most foundational level to meet someone. But also I think like, you know, many people have like a longing that they were attractive enough to meet people in real life, which I think is like another thing that um, makes like dating apps appealing to certain people. Um, like, but then you like, you realize like, you're just not like, it's, there's just no space for you. It's just hard to attract someone. Um, so, so what, so in a sense, there's, um, did you see this piece that, uh, the writer, is her name Talia Levin wrote about doing like a blob? Did you see that one? No, she, she has, she's me blocked on, on Twitter. So I retaliated by like muting her name. And now I don't, okay, she's so, totally off my radar. <laughs> so that's a good, that's a good, good excuse. It was, it was a, it was a humor piece, I think. And it was briefly the, you know, the like cent- central thing that a, the dozen or so people who, or a couple dozen who, you know, set the tone on Twitter were discussing. And it's basically like, you know, she was feeling already left out of the hot back summer because she felt like, you know, she was still her blobbish and she kept on using the word blob. Um, you know, physical self, and there were all these over-the-top descriptions of her, um, of her, you know, physical body shape, and some of which were funny, other ones, which if I was the editor, I would have uh, cut them out because it just went on too long, but yeah, she was like, you know, everyone in the world is getting ready to get out again and have sex, but I'm still, like, stuck in this body that I, like, hate myself for, and I haven't been able to you know, improve myself, um, over the, uh, over the course of the pandemic. And I, I don't know if there's an expectation that, that like people are going to be better than they were before, at least physically, uh, once we return to normal, um, that seems, seems like, I, f- I feel like people are going to be more forgiving of each other's like faults in various ways, because just because we've been so isolated, um, for so long, but, yeah, she. So I don't know if if she if that piece counts as sex positive or sex negative, but um, that is sort of a you know possible reaction. Or, but I mean, I guess even the fact that she wrote this piece is in some way on the sex positive side of the ledger because she's talking publicly and in print about things that maybe twenty five years ago people wouldn't talk publicly about. Um, I guess another thing is that, you know, if, if, if part of the like reaction of young people who are sick of millennials oversharing online is that they're going to sort of make, make their lives somewhat more private, um, which seems that would be logical to me and se- se- definitely seems like it could happen. You know, like, are the, yeah, like, how do we, you know, where is this sort of a absence of evidence, evidence of absence thing? Like, how do we know this? <laughs> what, what they're doing. I don't know what I have zero contact with people who are 
in their late teens, early twenties, aside from like TikTok videos that go viral, um, you know, most people probably still don't live their lives like constantly documenting them uh, through an app. Like that's probably still unusual. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Like, I don't know. Like there's some group of people who probably are more or less going about their, their day without, you know, saying I'm telling you everything or I'm, um, I'm going to keep quiet about this. So, so I mean, I I think, I think people are pretty plugged in. And the, the problem is it's like, it's easy to sort of view it through the lens of like people who have a huge audience. But even if you think about it, like, you know, like, um, people like sending you just like they're on a walk and just like sending a picture because like something catches their eye, like their phone is out during the walk and they're not fully engaged in the walk. Um, and I think like, that's really common. And I think like these smaller behaviors might be like, you know, like also like symptoms of what I'm talking about. Um, like there's certain like openness and like just, you know, one-on-one conversations that would, will also go away. I mean, there's a lot of things happening. Um, wanting to be more private would is also a product of, of cancel culture. Like you don't want to be canceled. And again, like cancellation isn't necessarily like you are up for like an audience of hundreds of thousands or hundreds or, you know, everyone online is dogpiling you. Cancel culture is also like your individual group of friends um, saw like, you know, an, an essay you wrote in ninth grade and, it you like maybe you shared it and it was a joke and then it came off as like kind of racist or something and everyone blew it out of proportion and then you got ousted from the group i mean like these things happen on like large and small scales um so like you you know i a lot of these adjustments are we will be you know they'll be most visible at the top with like the personalities and um you know where we could sort of see it like on twitter and tiktok and wherever else whatever other um social platforms emerge but then you if you pay attention you'll probably also be able to like observe them on like the micro scale um you know like for me like with younger people um i've noticed like a lot more um you know men too uh, like a lot more people i know between uh like 20 and 24 like i really want to have kids um and i think i like mentioned that earlier in the conversation like i didn't hear that at all like when i was uh, mm-hmm. you know, when I was in college, I, but my college age friends are it now it's like kind of a little bit transgressive. So you shock your parents by having a kid at age 23. Um, yeah, you shock your parents by saying like, I'm not going to wait for the, you know, the, the job or like the perfect person. And I'm just going to bite the bullet and do it. Um, do you, so yeah, that the the sense that you know being canceled doesn't mean like everyone suddenly finds out your name online and there's articles about you in the Times. Like there, I remember it may have been. Um, it's, it's, I remember hearing a professor saying that uh, his current students don't like discussing controversial topics in class, and then if he asks a question that's provocative, no one will raise their hand to answer. Um, and what I thought was. Oh, these these kids like they grew up entirely in a world where the, anything they do could be recorded, and then everyone has a phone in their pocket. And so if they raise their hand and start saying something, and then maybe someone gets offended by it, and they're recording it, and then they like send it out, then they're in trouble. So so why not just like keep it to themselves <laughs> instead of 
and like let's all get along instead of being like the provocative student who gets attention in class. So this would be another way that you know technology is 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 shaping shaping this behavior. Yeah, and then there's there, there's some people who like really crave attention. So you you, you know you like this is like a, that's like the opposite's really really common, and it was like super common in my generation to like purposely be over the top because because you know everything's recorded and then you have cancel culture emerge and it's like oh you know like oh shit like millennials are airing all their dirty laundry with the like you know express intention uh to to get this kind of attention um and now you know being a provocateur will will bite you in the ass and put you in a position where like if you're lucky maybe you could be like a right-wing influencer (laughs) Um, but if you're, if you're not, you know, it's like now, what? Right. you know, I'm thinking, um, a lot of, you know, I, like I said, I have very little connection to like people who are like teens or early twenties now, but you know, there's, you hear, <laughs> there's stories often about, um, like YouTube, YouTube influencers who like this guy, like Mr. Beast, there was just a piece about Mr. Beast in the um in the times and i guess he is sort of those like youtube pranks and stuff but also he would do these things where he would just like give someone on the street a thousand dollars or something so he came to be seen as a good guy but maybe behind the scenes he was treating everyone he worked with as an asshole it seems like a lot of from what i can tell of the young people like they're they're you know they're more often like ingesting content through youtube or twitch or tiktok and then the people who are popular there are often like, yeah, doing like pranks and, or silly dances and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, so, it, you know, I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it, that sort of, you know, like, and it, it often turns out that, that these people like Jake Paul or uh, other people are often sort of have sociopathic tendencies that made them, you know, want to like mug in front of the camera and have a million subscribers on YouTube. Like that the sort of personality that makes you a YouTube influencer is probably like not the type of person you actually want like your child to, to be or something. So I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure people are going to get young people are going to get sick of, of that kind of stuff, but it's, it's the popularity at least for now continues and, like this Mr. Beast guy partnered with a like fast food company or ghost ghost kitchen company. And he had during the pandemic debuted like hundreds of like burger, (laughs) burger ghost kitchens where you could just order it online. And so he's raking in money and he's, you know, like 22 years old. So I don't know the, 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 the information economy creates all these opportunities for people to become popular, popular and (laughs) make money and then the type of person who does that is maybe not, you know, you wouldn't want them for your son-in-law or something. But anyway, I, I think if there's, if there's people who, if, if the, if the young people want to be less online, I think that's probably a good thing. Um, you know, as like mediating our lives through social media uh, companies that don't have our best interests at heart anyway, but just want to keep you addicted to them. Like, like that's been pretty bad. Well, that's the interesting thing. I don't even know if it's less online though, is the thing. It's just like mm-hmm. a different way of being online um, and like different kind of like signaling. Um, you know, I don't like, 
I don't think people are like the best way to trend forecast, I think, is to like look at the different major social networks again, like, um, you know, they generally don't change, but uh, sometimes they do. Like, I, I certainly wouldn't look at Facebook and in some cases, not even Instagram, but like Twitter and TikTok right now um, and see what people are are saying. And it's like, that's what will sort of infiltrate the mainstream. Uh, I know I'm a big believer that like Tumblr was like a really great, like if you wanted to know what life would be like today um, or even like a few Uh years ago, like look at Tumblr, um, you know, like again, like 2008 to like 2013, 2014. Um, But there's like different ways of signaling and like uh, different trends and different subcultures that will emerge as the dominant ones. So um, yeah, I don't think I, I, I think like confessing less online doesn't mean that you're, you're less online. It's just you're online in a different way. Okay. That, that makes sense. Um, let's, okay. We're, we we're maybe moving towards the end of our time, but what, what are some other things that, you know, happened in that, in this period you're thinking about 2008 to 2014, 15, like what are, what are other key developments or events that, that shaped? So, how people act now i think you have like a a really interesting thing where um traditional media starts to change um and what you start and this i mean this has been you know i'm not the first and i won't be the last to talk about um you know like the journalist as a, a media personality but the other piece of that that i think is maybe less talked about is um i to to get clickbait you need topics right so um there was a lot of like strip mining, um, like Tumblr and Reddit uh, for subcultures to write about or like little oddities to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, and those things may have never, um, you know, may have never been like transmitted to like a larger audience if they didn't start getting written it because like, you know, one person writes about it and gets a bunch of clicks or it goes viral. And then another person writes about it and another person expands on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think like that had a huge, a huge impact on like just the ability of like how these pieces were then able to be shared, um, you know, just like, like wildfire. Like, I don't think there's probably like no sort of like subculture or like sexual quirk that really surprises people anymore because I mean, in this period of time, there's just an explosion of like, well, you'll never guess what people are doing in like this, you know, Brooklyn nightclub and it just, it, you know, and then suddenly it's like 10 years later, that weird thing that everyone was doing in that one Brooklyn nightclub is like totally the norm. And, you know, like you have a coworker who's talking about it, like it's no big deal uh, over lunch. So, right? so, so this is like I, being a, like a furry or something like sort of esoteric, weird, like sub. Sure. They, I mean, there's, it's like, like being a furry or like even like, you know, some, like some parts of like the kink community, like that stuff's always been around um, or it's like been, it, you know, if you were sort of alternative um, it was always kind of on your radar, even if you didn't know about it explicitly, but now all of this stuff has been ripped out of the shadows and is center stage because that's, you know, sub- submitting, a, submitting an article um, in that period of time was as easy as like a personal essay where you're sort of, you know, participating in this humiliation ritual for clicks and 50 bucks, mm-hmm. or you like you, you trawl Wikipedia or Reddit or Tumblr and you find something you're like, oh, that's weird. I'm gonna, it, you know, why not? I could, I could get 500 words out of that and, you know, 500 words and, and 50 mm-hmm. bucks. 
Um, so what? So one thing we haven't mentioned, I don't think, I guess just a little bit with mentioning OnlyFans is like online porn and the you know, like total ubiqui- ubiquity of online porn. Um, do you do you see a, a movement against that? I mean, from the from the outside, it seems like with OnlyFans, like it's it's gone to the next level of like not you don't watch the porn like you are the porn and you can become like a mini porn star from your from your bedroom or something. People are people are already like pushing back against that though because it's like you know it, it only takes a few thousand people to realize that they're gonna that if they're lucky they'll make $300 a month and now they you know and it, now they just you know very intimate photos or videos of themselves are online forever um for people to start saying like maybe we should start you know, regulating this, even if that regulation just comes through social stigma. Mm -hmm. And you already see it. You already see people saying like, look, I tried OnlyFans. Um, I only made like a couple of hundred dollars a month. I I needed that couple of hundred dollars, but it really wasn't worth uh, losing that privacy or losing the respect of my mom or, you know, whatever problem they ran into. Um. Do you, uh, how, how do you think about the people who are like, um, like, uh, this guy, Sorab Amari, who, um, is, uh, a, a conservative Catholic. He's, I think he's the editor of the New York Post opinion page, but he, um, like, and sort of these pe- people who want to return or create a sort of, you know, religious America and, um, and the thing that set, the thing that, launched Amari into national consciousness was his objection to a drag queen story hour that was happening at his local public library. Or actually I don't even think it was his local public library. It was just one that it was happening somewhere in the country and the thing went viral. And that's where, you know, a drag queen will like read a, re- read a children's book to a group of tots. And um, so he, that really angered him. And he's like, you know, essentially Western civilization has already fallen. We need to retreat into some sort of, um, catholic uh you know like mini state or something um do you do you think that that sort of thing could actually happen or is that just something that like people talk about online um i so i i i I not of that belief but i understand why people would want that um and i i even understand why like a drag a drag queen story hour might um you know, offend certain people's sensibilities, even if, you know, I, I, I don't know if I totally agree. Um, I don't think that there, it's possible to turn the United States um, into a theocracy, but I do think that um, there's a hunger for um, shared values. And the easiest way to find that is religion. Um, you know, it, it's, I, I think like the drags, queen story hour is like interesting because i don't think i don't think drag queens are inherently sexual but i think it's like a campy performance that um, makes sense with like a certain context that i don't necessarily think is accessible to children um and it could be like you know confusing um and you know i i could understand why people like why not everyone would be on the same page about that um and a like religious community where there's clear rules even if you don't agree with all of those rules you know at least you have guideposts whereas 
now it's it's like I think it's like kind of controversial for me to say like can't, like the mechanics of camp aren't necessarily intelligible to children like that might read as homophobic but really like to me it's like about the costumes and like what is it supposed to express and like a theatricality that like a five-year-old might not appreciate um so but that's because we don't have shared values as a country um something that i've been thinking a lot about is that you know the the natural um there's sort of a, a moral censoriousness that arose on the left you know at the same time that everyone was like getting okay with polycules and um you know bdf bdsm fetishes you know, um, portrayed publicly. And th- this was, it's often related to race, um, trans status, uh, sometimes, sometimes gender. I mean, race is the strongest one. And then this like feels cancel culture and stuff. Um, but, you know, like there's, there's moralism on both left and right, but it, it like moral values play a, traditionally a stronger role on the right than the left but the right was being led um, for five years by uh, Donald Trump, who was a totally amoral figure. And, um, and, you know, Donald Trump doesn't care about drag queen story hour. In fact, he, um, he kissed Rudy Giuliani when Giuliani was dressed in drag for a skit. Um, so he's, he, he has no, if he knows what that is, he, he doesn't care about it, but he, and he's a totally, yeah, it's, morality plays no role in his personal calculations. And so that, that is kind of a historical aberration. Usually, um, you know, conservatives elect people who like don't brag about having sex with playboy models and stuff. So now that Trump is mostly gone, largely faded from the scene, he actually just set up, did you see that he just set up this sort of personal Twitter like thing on his website where he can type out tweet like, like statements in a scroll. So, so he can, Get, get his get his ideas out there but um he's basically absent from the public conversation now um it makes sense that the conservatism will return to his moralism and conservatism will <laughs> return to their you know natural alliance and and the stuff like the amari stuff sort of this also is part, like QAnon is is part of this because you know the underlying belief of the QAnon people is that there's a cabal of um satanic cannibalistic pedophiles who are uh killing and eating and raping children and so obviously ever, anyone would be against that if it were true but sort of like save the children kind of stuff i guess is is like the one of the emotional undercurrents of of QAnon. so so yeah i i, I the, the the left weirdly like embraced this sort of like quasi-religious ideology at the same time that the right was just focus on the Trump, you know, the, the Trump spectacle. And so that, that weird, the Trump spectacle is, is mostly gone, hopefully forever. And so the moral, I think the moralism will return to the right. Although you do have these, you know, the fact that Jerry Falwell Jr. turns out to, you know, like be a cuck fetishist, like makes that somewhat harder, but that's sort of an old story, I guess, about the, you know, traditional moral leaders actually being hypocrites, whatever. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, maybe things will, will return to some sort of. Well, it's, it's like, there's, I think this is kind of like a strength of the right. There's like many different ways to be right wing. And if you're rejected by the left, the right will like try to sort of immediately recruit you. Um, which 
is it's become like a refuge, which it really shouldn't be because you're right. Like traditionally, like the right wing is a, as a place for like a certain set of morals. Um, but the left has become um, so sort of like myopic and rigid that it, it, it isn't there. It isn't a place where you could like seek absolution and unite under maybe like a, you know, a suite of causes. It's just sort of like, either you're with us or you're against us. And also the goalposts are always moving and we might like excommunicate you if you did something wrong 11 years ago, which is really scary for a lot Mm -hmm. of people. I think probably a lot of people are like defensively right wing just to sort of be like, yeah, cancel me, but I'm like, I'm already on the other side. So, you know, you know, try your best. Yeah. This is something that uh, Elizabeth Brunig once tweeted something like, you know, you can't have a, a coherent culture where you're constantly searching for, transgressions without there being a way to like have absolution and like penance and forgiveness and the part of the you know left side that is obsessed with like finding people to cancel like you know there's no there's no absolution there's no way to there's no forgiveness um whereas i guess with the right they you can always sort of um you know be born again whether like literally or like sort of renounce your past sins and and now you're you know like and now you're in their good graces again like um you know like the, the that guy he, i think he passed away a couple of years ago who was one of um who um chuck colson was that his name he, he started this, he went to jail because of uh <laughs> watergate related crimes and then like ended up starting like this prison ministries kind of thing and that and so he got back in the good graces and um yeah, that's that. The, there's there's no obvious way to do that besides like, you can't even like do a book report on, on like white fragility or something on the left and and expect um expect to be uh, forgiven your 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 past sins. So so that's that's a unstable equilibrium, I think. Um, is there anything else we've gone on for a while? Is there anything else you wanna you wanna say about the podcast or sex, gender, other controversial topics before we wrap up? Um, I don't. I don't think so. I think. Yeah, I think that's all I have. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on. So, after the orgy is the podcast. You co-host it with another woman who has a pseudonym, Personality Girl, and um, and you have guests on on occasion. So, so people can find it wherever they, uh, you know, wherever they're listening to. Uh, if they're listening to this as a podcast, they can find it on that similar platform. It's uh, <laughs> all those places, and you are. Uh, what what's where uh, where are other places that people can find you uh find your content um you can find me on on twitter uh all the time all day every day <laughs> <laughs> every every day of the you, year you do take um, breaks sometimes at, though let's let's be honest you on occasion will um we'll take a twitter break this this is true um i will take like a a three to six month long break but but generally uh uh yeah, you can find me at default underscore friend or default friend one word dot substack dot com. Um, and, and yeah, uh, after the orgies, basically everywhere where you could download a podcast. And your substack is you both have essays on there and also like an advice column kind of thing where um, people are writing in and and you're letting them uh, <laughs> you're offering some advice on their various uh, quandaries in life. So that, that I think that's an interesting um interesting thing to like the, the, the i mean that whole you can have a whole conversation about the way that advice columns um 
have sort of like taken over some some part of the discourse. Like, I don't know if you ever look at Slate, but about 50% of their content is now advice columns. And the things they are discussing, the quandaries they're discussing are, is, are um, interesting to just like sociological objects <laughs> on their own. Um, so, check, so check all that stuff out. And you can also follow me on Twitter, uh, REACW. You can rate and review this podcast wherever. You can smash that like button on YouTube. Or um, you can leave a comment about how we're wrong about all this. And, um, and uh, or you can do none of those things. You could just uh, go on with your life and put your phone away and take a walk in nature and not even take a photo of a pretty leaf or something. Decide to send to a friend. Just uh, savor the moment uh, for yourself. Um, the choice is yours. Uh, so <laughs> thank you, uh, default friend, for, for doing this. And um, thanks to our viewers and listeners. And we'll see you again next time.